Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. I'm going to a city that's set on a hill. Its ruler and maker is the Lord God above. Oh, I'm going to a city and it's set on a hill. And someday I'll be in heaven and there'll be no sorrow there. Oh, I'm going to a city. It lies four square. The gates are made of jasper. Hello, everybody. God bless you today. This is Susan Puzio, and I want to welcome you to the Prophetic News radio broadcast on Blog Talk Radio. And we also have our YouTube channel, and that's under my name, Susan Puzio. And we have our books, and for the next five days, if you have a Kindle or you can download a Kindle Reader app from Amazon, and and it's free. You can read these Kindle, some of the Kindle books for free. But anyway, our Kindle version of the Paula White book will be available for the next five days for free download. So if you want to read it, it's there. And also our other book, Seed Faith, Can a Man Bribe God?, how false teachers manipulate and hypnotize you for offerings. But only the uh, Paula White book is available on the free Kindle download for the next five days. And we're, we're going to be redoing the book because there's so many new revelations that have come out that it's absolutely shocking, really, the things that are going on. But it's all leading in, into the new world order of the one world government and the coming of the Antichrist, we see it unfolding before us, and we never thought we were going to see the day when we would be living through this pandemic plague that never seems to end, and some countries are stricter than others. Of course, in our country, they want to have these vaccine mandates, which they do have in many places. We're If people don't get vaccinated, they can't work, they can't eat in a restaurant, they can't go to a gym, or there's things they can't do. So, But, of course, it's worse in in Australia, and uh, my heart goes out to the brethren there that uh, it's like, I guess, the lockdown capital of the world, and the way they have been enforcing these rules and regulations it's been very, very barbaric, really. But we have yet to go after, and, and it's not only our country, it's all the countries in the world to go after the per- the people that have dispersed this thing upon the universe, and no one has been held accountable. The, the, one, the 
They're trying to hold the unvaccinated accountable now for spreading the virus, like, please. They told everybody to get these vaccines because they were going to stop the spread and they were going, you, if you got a vaccine, you weren't going to get the virus and you weren't going to die. You, you might get sick, but you might not die. But I found that hasn't been true as far as people that I've known personally that died with the vaccine and got sick with the vaccine. So if you look at some of the numbers of the COVID cases last year, January 7th, 2021, there was 280,000. January of 2022, there's 894,000 cases. So, and that's with the vaccine. And then the death, 2021, January, 4,113 and the deaths so far, January 7th, 2022, I don't know how they rank these things, really. I don't know how accurate those numbers really are, but those are the numbers, what they're saying. And it's the weirdest thing, too, because I have a friend that got the virus last week. And they were trying to get a hold of America's frontline doctors where they were so inundated with people that they weren't really getting back to people in time that needed emergency help. So they have, uh, they had a, where you could visit the doctor online. I think you paid $90 to do telemedicine and then they would write you a prescription. For instance, if they thought you might want something like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or the budesonide inhaler, some of the alternatives, which people have a right to medicine if if uh, they think the medicine is going to help them and if the particular doctor that they're going to thinks the medicine is going to help them, then they have a right to have the medicine. But they're trying to make it difficult for people to get these alternatives And uh, so, anyway, they couldn't get the appointment there, but they found this, they found a doctor that told them that they had to drive an hour away to go, and and they were sick, but they had to drive an hour away to find a doctor that would treat them with the uh, ivermectin and the uh, inhaler, budesonide, because there's other drugs that they use. They use steroids. They use remdesivir. And, but some people don't want that, that particular one. They want the uh, budesonide, which doesn't seem to have as many side effects or so. It seems from what I've been hearing from different people in reading. And then, then they had to go, they, they told them that most pharmacies won't even fill these prescriptions. Now, can you imagine that, that you, you're sick and there's a medicine that you think is going to help you without all the side effects and you can't get that you can't get a pharmacy to fill it you have to go to a particular pharmacy which is all the way out of the way because you can't just go to any pharmacy and get these prescriptions filled now what kind of a world is that 
where certain medicines aren't uh, being recognized as working when I I know that some of these medicines have helped people. Maybe they didn't help everybody, but either did the vaccine or either did some of the other treatments. So I think you have a right to pick the kind of treatment that you want and uh, discriminating against the treatments, which you can't believe it. And then another friend of mine that had it went to the doctor and her oxygen level was low. So they said, we're going to take you to the hospital. And they took her to the hospital and her, they put her on oxygen, but then the doctor told her, we have to intubate you. And if, and if you don't let us do it, you're going to be dead in 60 days and you have, and you have to leave the hospital. So she said, no, I don't want to be on a ventilator. And so they said, well, you have to leave. So she had to leave. Anyway, she went home with an oxygen tank, and 90 days later, she's still alive. She didn't die. And so it's very, very odd, this whole thing. But like I said, they're not really holding the people accountable. What are they afraid of? Did the Chinese really do it? So are, are they afraid that they're going to strain their relationship with China after all they own most of our manufacturing? So whoever owns the manufacturing for the most part really owns the country. So who's being, who's being uh, brought to justice over this thing? Nobody, nobody is. They're, they're too concerned with other matters when this is the most pressing matter that we're living with right now and there's no end in sight. And I personally don't think it's ever going away. It might not be as bad as it is, but I don't, I don't know how you can never contain a, a virus. You can't use a butterfly net or something to go capture it and it's going to go away. And it just seems to be continue to be mutating. So, yeah, I guess you have to learn to live with it and uh, to alter your life lifestyle if you have to, and to try to be content because what the Bible says that godly, godliness with contentment brings great gain. So I know some of my friends say, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. And yeah, that's true. There's a lot of things you can't do, but there's things you can do and so you have to try to focus your attention on trying to make sure you don't get sick. And some people get sicker than others, believe me. I, I know people that have been very, very sick. And so it's not worth getting sick to try to maybe get on an airplane or, or put yourself in a situation where you're vulnerable, especially if you're older or you have underlying conditions. So I say that no matter what we're going through, we can find some joy in uh, in some of the blessings that the Lord has afforded us, even though we're going through this terrible thing and our lives have been altered forever. 
we have to try to look on the bright side of uh, counting our blessings because I, I do that myself. I try not to focus so much on, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. But there's things I can do and, and there's things I can do that I do enjoy even though I can't do some of the other things that I like doing. But I think that it's for uh, just for our attitude to try to keep our attitude in check. Because what can we do? We're powerless over the situation, really. And only God can get us through. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And he'll get us through anything that we have to go through. And it's, people have been through terrible tragedies by losing family members and close friends. And uh, so, yeah, it's terrible, but we can still rejoice in the Lord and try to get through it the best that we can because we don't know what the next thing is going to be. We really don't. We really don't know what's coming next. We have, we never thought we were going to see anything like this. And uh, I'm watching television last night and I'm watching these commentators and everybody's got a mask on. Did we ever think that we were going to see everywhere you go that people are wearing a mask and you're watching commentators and they're all masked up? And no, you, you just, you just never thought that you were going to see this kind of thing. And people have to be afraid of each other and because uh, you don't know where this little demon virus is lurking, which you don't know. You don't know where it is. It's creepy. So, but I, I don't like the propaganda that they're trying to push, that trying to blame. Let's blame the unvaccinated. You have a if you want a vaccine, that's your right. If you don't want one, that's your right too. But obviously, by the numbers, they haven't been a hundred percent effective. I don't even think they've been fifty percent effective. And uh, so, anyway, they're going to be voting. They took it to the Supreme Court as far as the mandates go where they were, the federal government was trying to mandate that everybody had to be vaccinated, otherwise it couldn't work. And next, they won't let you go. To, who knows? Eventually, they might not let you go to grocery shopping, or they might not want you to, to even leave your house. And I think it was like that in some countries, especially in Australia, where I think somebody was out walking their dog, and they wanted the police to trying to arrest the person. So, yeah, welcome to the brave new world, but we're living it, we're living it, and we have to try to get through it for as long as we're here, because we don't know how long we're going to be here. We we never thought we were going to see the breakdown of society. We heard about it, yeah, we we all probably have read the book of Revelation, and we heard about the breakdown of society, but... We always thought 
probably most of us thought that it would be in the future. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's for another generation. It's not going to happen to us, but it has. It has. And so anyway, that's, that's some of the news of the day. There's there's all all kinds of crazy news when you when you look at some of the news reports and you you try to filter things out to try to see what's real news and what's fake news because there's so much fake news out there and you really have to check your sources and and then try to cross reference things to be able to find out exactly who's telling the truth about things. But there there is there is some good reporting out there and there there's some trustworthy news sources that you can get news from. But so much propaganda and so much lying. We used to talk about years ago we used to talk about the Soviet Union and their Pravda, I think it was, and their propaganda arm of their <laughs> of their government. But we're seeing it now in, in this country. I never, I never saw so much propaganda and fake reporting to try to turn people against each other, as I'm seeing now. And it does, it works. It works because most people aren't going to go and. Uh, check out the sources. They might turn on the nightly news or they might turn on one of the news channels on cable and that's where they get their news. So they believe everything they're hearing, whether it's true or not. And it's it kind of reminds me of the situation in the churches where people will go to church or they'll, they'll listen to their favorite preacher on TV and then they never go back and they never listen to it themselves to see if what they're saying is so. They never check it out. They just believe the person. And uh, I think a lot of people would be shocked if they really did their homework and they they said, okay, I'm going to look up some information, say, about Beth Moore, or I'm going to look up some information about Kat Kerr or I'm going to look up some information about Paula White or James Robinson or Kenneth Copeland. Now, just who who are these people really, and what do they really believe? And I think people would really be shocked if they re- if they really knew some of the things that these people teach and some of the things that these people say. And it really is not Christianity. It's really not biblical Christianity the way that we knew it or we know it. It's a it's another form of Christianity. So, but that's what we have to do, and we we have the benefit of having the internet, which it's like having a library at home. You don't have to go to the library anymore because you can look up just about anything on the internet, and you could get information. And just like I always try to do on this broadcast is I always try to play the person's words. I don't just say, okay, they said this or I, or 
something like that. I always try to play the video to back or the audio to back up what I'm saying. So you can hear it coming from their mouth and you can't deny that they said it and you can't then accuse the person of saying, well, you said they said it. No, I'm not saying they said it. They said it because we have the words coming out of their own mouth. And that's what you need to do is to look on some of the video channels and then on you can put words in the, in the search and you can get information about these people and you can find out for yourself because you definitely don't want to follow false teachers and false prophets. So last week we talked about Tavner Smith, this pastor from Tennessee, and he was caught, even though supposedly he filed for divorce in May, then he was caught kissing his worship leader or someone on the worship team. Anyway, so he's now going on a month-long sabbatical, which that's not enough time when you're messed that messed up that's not enough time to uh go on a sabbatical for counseling and whatever he, he this man needs some real time off and really does this man need to be a pastor <laughs> i don't think so i don't think so this this is a very troubled individual and uh, if you're going to be a pastor of a church, you have to be held to a, a higher standard, of, especially of morality, because people want to feel safe. And I don't think people are going to feel very safe in that kind of an environment, really. But anyway, he's going to go on his month-long sabbatical. And I noticed... Uh, I know TBN has, well, they had two channels. They used to have two channels, the church channel and then the regular TBN channel on cable and on direct TV. And then Hillsong took over the church channel, and it was like 24 hours a day of Hillsong. But I've noticed the past week that they're not doing that anymore. So I think some of the problems that they're having at Hillsong with Brian Houston being brought up on these charges that he didn't do enough when his father was molesting children, that they didn't do enough to protect the children. And then there's been some financial things. And then, of course, all the scandals that have been plaguing them, especially with the Carl Lentz scandal. But anyway, they're not doing their 24-hour channel and it's even been renamed. So I think if, you, if you've if you seen it in the past, you might want to go check it out and see for yourself that it seems like TBN is taking over that channel again and Hillsong is on their way out. I guess they couldn't afford it or maybe they had some kind of a deal with TBN that with all these scandals and who knows what's going to happen to Brian Houston with these charges that he's facing Anyway, I thought I thought that was pretty interesting when I was flipping through and I'm I'm saying, Well, where's the Hillsong channel? And I didn't see it. I really didn't see it, but anyway, let's listen to um let's listen to this 
scripture before we get started here because we're going to talk about the Anglican Church and we're going to talk about Beth Moore and her slippery slide there leaving the Southern Baptist Convention and she goes into an Anglican church. Well, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's plenty wrong with that, really, when you look at the Anglican church. Anyway, let's listen to Galatians 1 here. The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Galatians, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me, Unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. Amen to that. He preached the faith which he was trying to destroy. <laughs> what a conversion, amen? But anyway, we're warned not to uh, follow people that preach another gospel and another Jesus. And there's certainly uh, quite a few Jesuses out there. There's some very strange Jesuses that uh, people talk about. Uh, that I don't recognize from scripture anyway. Now, here's here's the uh, Cat Kerr version. She has this version of... There's a whole place called Jello Land in heaven. It really does exist. 
And then part of that land, of course, there's, there's houses made out of candy. They're made out of all kinds of things. Uh, flowers, a whole house made out of flowers. And they mm -hmm. sing to you all the time when you come to your, to your mansion. And uh, But candy is one of the most favorite things. I know there's chocolate waterfalls probably would be a part of that mansion made out of candy. Uh, you can just go jump out in the waterfall and, and drink the chocolate or swim in the chocolate. And so, yes, in, in the Jello land part of it, people will reach out and they'll take, you know, a bite of the house or take a handful of the house and eat it, and then it comes right back. You can bounce in the Jello land houses also, and uh, but the candy house, I think, is a great idea. It makes me think of that game, Candyland. So uh, let me tell you, I will say this, Jesus Christ does have a soft part in his heart for sweets. He loves sweets. And so he'd probably be right there with you, you know, tasting the chocolate or the candy canes or whatever else was made, your, your house was made out of. Yeah. There's bouncy houses in heaven, she says. Bouncy houses made out of candy and chocolate waterfalls. Jello, Jello land, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> now, this is supposed to be a legitimate prophetess cat her and uh, she is regularly regularly can't say that word <laughs> with um, Steve Schultz yeah she appears I think she's with him once a week anyway on uh, YouTube they do a show together and she brings her words and she's pretty wacky She's pretty wacky. We, we've heard a little, a few of her other comments in the past, and uh, yeah, she's got some wild renditions of Jesus. So we have something to look forward to, Church, for all of us that love chocolate. So when we get to heaven, there's going to be chocolate waterfalls. I don't know where she got that from. Uh, I don't think. <laughs> I don't remember ever reading anything like that in scripture. She's got a very vivid imagination, but it seems like she has to keep coming up with different things to uh, talk about because she keeps making these trips to heaven. She claims she goes all the time, and uh, she always comes back with these stories, but these are extra-biblical revelations that... Uh, are coming to this poor woman. But anyway, I thought I, I thought you might enjoy that. <laughs> oh dear, Lord help us. But I wanted to talk too a little bit today about the Anglican Church because it's very very interesting. I think we have so many branches of religiosity that and it, it it really amazes me that people fall for these things because now, I personally, I know there's some people out there, they have some good channels and they give out, they report news. And, but I, I don't want anybody to teach me the Bible that's bowing down to a chalice on an altar. No, I don't want you to teach me the Bible. And I don't want anybody to teach me the Bible that's got statues in their church. I, I don't want that person teaching me the Bible. I don't want somebody teaching me the Bible and telling and and uh, 
they believe that Jesus lives in a wafer. No, I, I don't want that person teaching me the Bible because they don't know the Bible. First of all, Jesus does not live in a wafer. And you can say all the prayers and the incantations and anything you want. You're not going to change that wafer and bread and wine, whatever is in that chalice. You're not going to change it to Jesus. You're just not going to do it. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's sitting there. And remember, he ascended into heaven. And so... He doesn't live in pieces of bread and wafers. So I don't want those people teaching me the Bible. And I don't want, no, I might, I might be your friend. I might like some of your, your news reporting and that kind of thing. But no, as far as teaching me the Bible, no, you can't teach me the Bible because you don't know it. And so Beth Moore now, she, she uh, left the Southern Baptist Convention and she joins the Anglican Church and she's still going around holding Bible studies. And no, I don't want Beth Moore teaching me the Bible because she doesn't know the Bible. You can't go from, and, and when I was thinking about it today, I was thinking, well, she became associated with James Robison and she was doing uh he was giving her one day a week on his program where she was teaching on the program she had the whole half hour and so she became even more well known then of course with that kind of exposure but when you hang around James Robison and you say well what's wrong with James Robison well he went to see the pope and he's he uh considers the catholic church as part of the true Christian church, which it's not. And so uh, he was way off there on his doctrine. And so, of course, I guess hanging around her and him and supposedly her husband is Catholic or raised Catholic. I don't know if he's a practicing Catholic, but so she leaves the Southern Baptist Convention and she goes to the Anglican Church. And so I don't know that much about the Anglican Church. I never was in an Anglican Church as far as attending a service. I've been in many of the churches in England, St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey and different churches that I've, I've been to England over 30 times. So I visited many of the palaces and the castles and the churches to see the architecture and to learn the history, which they have a great history. And uh, many, many beautiful palaces and castles and and uh, beautiful English countryside. But so, and then I knew that they had the Archbishop of Canterbury and he dresses in the funny outfits, the costumes that he looks like a cardinal or a bishop of the Catholic Church. It's very, very similar. So when you look at the history of the Anglican Church and then you see Beth Moore and you can see the videos on the uh, video channels with, if you type in Beth Moore in the Anglican Church, you can see her now. She's there in this Anglican Church and she's wearing a funny outfit. She's got 
what what uh, when I went to the Catholic Church as a child, the altar boy altar boys would wear these cassocks over. They'd wear a long black dress, and then they would have this white short top on over it, and so she was wearing one of those white tops over something she had underneath. It looked like, I guess she had on a dress or whatever. Maybe she had on that long robe. I don't know. I didn't see the bottom of it, but, and then she's there and she's carrying, they're carrying crucifixes and they're carrying staffs and, and they stop at the altar and they bow down. I don't, I don't think I saw her bow down, but, Catholics do that too, where if there's an altar in the church, there's a tabernacle there, a small box. If you if you ever have been in a Catholic church or you were Catholic, if you go in, you'll see an altar, and on the altar there's a what looks like a, a small tabernacle, a box, and inside of there is usually a chalice, which is a gold cup. It's usually made out of solid gold, and in that cup is the bread and wine and they tell you that Jesus is in that cup and they have a red light a candle that hangs from the ceiling usually in our in our catholic church they did now I stopped being a catholic when I was 12 so I haven't been a catholic for many many years but anyway I went to catholic school and so I went to catholic school for 7 years so I know about being a catholic so uh, Anyway, they had a red light that hangs down from the ceiling. It was a candle in a red glass. And if the if the candle was lit, you knew that Jesus was in the tabernacle. <laughs> so, so if you went inside the church and the red light was lit, uh, so you bowed down. You When you walked in, you bowed down to the tabernacle because Jesus was in there. Well, you can imagine as a child, you're very confused because you see Jesus you hear about Jesus, and then you see him as a person in a in a in a man's body, and but then he's there in he's there in that box in a chalice. So you have a kind of confused reality of who Jesus is, which I couldn't put it together. Truthfully, as a child, no, I couldn't put it together because how how is Jesus living in that box, and then? He's he ascended into heaven. So where is he, and who is he? So who is the author of confusion? So anyway, so she's there, marching down the aisle in her Anglican garb, and so it's very strange. I'm saying to myself, now what's happened to this woman? Did she ever was she ever really born again? Ever? because how do you go from Southern Baptists? Okay, Southern Baptists have their own issues. They have many, many problems. But years ago, now I've been saved since 1981, so that's 41 years. And so when I first got saved, I was in a small Baptist church. But in those days, when you went to a Baptist church, you knew you were going to hear the gospel. You were going to hear the plan of salvation. And you most likely were going to hear a pretty good sermon. Nowadays, you don't know what you're going to get when you go into a Baptist church because they're all over the place. So 
Anyway, she leaves the Southern Baptist Convention and she goes and she joins this Anglican church. And this has just happened recently. And then I see that she's teaching a Bible study at some other church, which seems like it's a non-denominational church. But but I'm, I'm like, well, what happened to you? Because how do you go from that to that? How do you go from that and then you go and you go to a church where they're bowing down to a chalice. Now, you know, it it doesn't make any sense. So I don't know what's happened to this woman. Did she lose it? Did she, she couldn't take the heat from people criticizing her. And uh, so she decides that she's going to go over there where apparently she says that she's accepted there and she feels so much love and well, they'll they'll love you today and they might not like you tomorrow. So why are you trying to base your relationship with Jesus Christ on human beings loving you? Because human beings can be flaky. They they can love you one day and hate you the next. Look at how they treated Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna. They were praising him when he was riding through on the donkey. And uh, then the next week they were killing him. So you can't base your relationship on Jesus Christ from the love and acceptance of human beings, you know, <laughs> because you're, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. So, but Jesus is not going to hurt you. No, he's not going to hurt you. So I'm thinking to myself, why is she doing this? What is wrong with this woman? But anyway, here's a little bit of the history. I want to uh, discuss some of the history here. And it goes back to Henry VIII, who founded the Church of England because he was he was a Catholic. And the Catholic Church like ruled the world at one time. And if you didn't belong to the Catholic Church, you might get killed or burned at the stake or something. And uh, I would encourage you to read the history of the of the Inquisition of the Catholic Church to find out how diabolical it all was. But anyway, Henry wa- wanted a male heir, and his wife couldn't produce one. His wife Catherine of Aragon, and she had she got pregnant with six children, but only one lived. The rest of them died, and none of them were boys. And at that time, there had to be a, bo- a male heir. So he wants to get rid of Catherine, who he's been married to since he was 17, who was first she was his brother's wife, and then the brother died. And then he, she married Henry. And they were married for a long time. I think it was over 20 years. Anyway, she couldn't have a son. She wouldn't. She couldn't produce a son, so he wanted to get rid of her and get an annulment on the grounds that they were never really married anyway because she was tainted because she had been his brother's wife. But the Pope didn't want to give him an annulment or a divorce, and so he started his own church, Henry started his own church. Henry, who had two of had six wives and had two of his wives beheaded. Now imagine that 
what woman in her right mind would want to marry Henry after he had Anne Boleyn's head chopped off? He he had four other wives after that. Now, what were they thinking? I guess when you're a king, that even even if you have your wife's head chopped off, you still might be a good marriage partner. <laughs> you know, if it was just anybody, just any guy, I'm sure women would have had a second thought. But since he was the king, four other women married him after that, and there was another one that had her head chopped off. So he he really wasn't a loving, what I would call a loving husband. But anyway, here's a little bit of the history. In 1516, at the Palace of Palencia in Greenwich, London, a baby girl is born. She will be called Mary, and she has been born to King Henry VIII and his Spanish wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon. Now ordinarily, you may think this would be an occasion of great celebration, but these are not ordinary times. These are the times of the fragile Tudor dynasty, and the Queen of England must supply heirs. Catherine had been pregnant four times since their marriage in 1509 and had delivered one girl and three boys, but none had survived longer than a couple of months. Henry was not only desperate for healthy children, but he was especially desperate for healthy boys. You see, in the early 16th century, it was far more desirable to have a king than a queen. So this new girl, Mary, although welcome, gave Henry further disappointment. But not to worry. Catherine is still young-ish and they can try again. So two years later, she becomes pregnant again. Another girl, who again dies after only a few hours. To say Henry was becoming impatient would be putting it mildly. And that was the last time Catherine would become pregnant. And so Henry needs to come up with a plan. In 1525, he spots a new girl amongst Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. She is called Anne Boleyn. He quite likes Anne, and so he starts an amorous relationship with her. And by 1527, he has decided he'd like to get shot at Catherine and marry Anne. Perhaps Anne is the one who can give him his male heirs. There's just one little problem with this plan. This is 16th century Europe. And if there's one thing you can say about 16th century Europe, is that it is very, very Catholic. And nothing happens in Catholic Europe without the big man, Pope Clement VII, giving his papal approval. So Henry gets his top man, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, to have a word with the Pope and get a divorce sorted out. Now you may think, well, job done. Except divorce at this time was very much frowned upon, and you're going to need a pretty good excuse. Henry's brilliant excuse is that because Catherine had been married before to a guy named Arthur, that Henry's marriage was therefore invalid. Have I not mentioned Arthur? I should perhaps say that Arthur is Prince Arthur, Henry's older brother who died in 1502. Okay, time for a look at the families. Catherine's parents are Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile. They were very powerful in Europe at this time and of course, very Catholic. Henry's dad, Henry VII, really wanted to be best pals with the Spanish and so it was agreed for Prince Arthur to marry Princess Catherine, which they did in 1501. England would have a Spanish Queen of England sitting next to King Arthur and all would be well in the land. Except, Prince Arthur only went and fell ill and died in 1502. So, to keep Ferdinand and Isabella happy, Henry VII thought, ah no, Catherine can marry young Henry. Problem solved. So they did, in 1509. 
But now Henry wants to end this with a divorce because he believes it's against God's will to marry a brother's widow. The Pope's bound to agree, so he best start his wedding preparations for Anne. Now, this is where things get a tad messy. The most powerful man in Europe at this time is Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And he doesn't exactly get on well with the Pope, and he does have a liking for the odd war here and there. But what's that got to do with Henry's divorce? Well, it turns out that Charles V is the nephew of Catherine, and because Catherine really likes being Queen of England, he takes her side and threatens the Pope not to grant the divorce. So, the Pope says, no divorce. And this does not please Henry. However, it has not gone unnoticed by the King that across Europe there has been a growing displeasure with the practices of the Catholic Church, and protest movements by the likes of Martin Luther were gathering pace. The demands for a Protestant Reformation would seem to come at an ideal time for Henry, as he now comes up with another brilliant plan. If the Catholic Church won't grant him a divorce, he'll simply set up his own church, make himself the supreme head, grant his own divorce, marry Anne Boleyn, and all will be well in the land. That's what he thought. <laughs> That's what he thought. But it wasn't well in the land. It wasn't well in the land because he he then marries Anne Boleyn and uh, she gets pregnant and she has a girl, Elizabeth, who later became queen. Uh, first, uh, his first wife's daughter, Mary, became queen first, but then she died and then Elizabeth became queen. But here's part two of that story. So this he did. The series of acts of parliament began in 1532 and he married Anne in 1533. And the whole break from Rome was completed in 1534 with the Act of Supremacy, where Henry granted himself the rather spectacular title of Supreme Head on Earth of the Church of England. So you'd think Henry was happy now, right? He's enjoying his new role as head of a new church, but he needs to make sure it sticks. So he sets about removing all signs of Catholicism from the land. All of the Catholic monasteries in England were dissolved and their riches plundered to swell the royal coffers, and the entire population was ordered to convert from Catholicism to the new Protestant Church of England. Most did, but those who refused to recognize Henry as the new head of a new church, well, they lost their heads. So, Henry gets his divorce, he created his new church, he married his new queen, he got rid of Catholics, now all he needs for the full set is a son, and all will be well in the land. Except, Queen Anne finds it difficult to provide him with a son, and only gives birth to a daughter, Elizabeth, in 1533. Henry loses patience with Anne, and through some shifty skullduggery, enough for a whole other video, she somehow manages to fall foul of the law, and is beheaded for treason. There's no problems with divorce then for Henry, so he's free to marry again, and he does. He falls for Jane Seymour, and he marries her in 1536. Surely this time a son will follow. Success! Queen Jane delivers a healthy boy in 1537, who will go on to become King Edward VI. Edward will continue his father's Protestant Reformation, but remember when I said that these were not ordinary times? Well, Edward dies in 1553, aged just 15. Now what? Well, he doesn't have any children, but he does have an older sister, Mary. Remember her? The one with the very Spanish, very Catholic mother? 
Well, guess what? She now becomes Queen Mary and immediately sets about undoing all that Protestant carry-on and tells England that although they'd all just made the switch from Catholicism to Anglicanism, would they mind awfully switching back or be executed? To strengthen her Catholic mission, she even goes as far as to marry Philip II of Spain, who just happens to be the son of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. Remember him? However, Mary dies in 1558, having never given birth to an heir. It would seem that along with the end of her reign was also the ending of the newfound English Catholicism because Mary's successor was her younger half-sister, Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, who was the whole reason for the switch to Protestantism in the first place. So guess what? It's time to again switch the English faith, this time back to the Church of England. Queen Elizabeth reinstates the act of supremacy, after her sister Mary had done away with it, and gives herself the title of Supreme Governor. And now, once again, all will be well in the land. Except, after Elizabeth died in 1603, having no heirs, the English throne was taken over by the Stuarts of Scotland. The following century would see skirmishes such as the Gunpowder Plot, looking to restore Catholicism, and it could be argued that the English Reformation lasted until 1688, when the English Civil War saw the deposing of the last Catholic monarch of England, James II. James was replaced by William III and Mary II, who ruled in conjunction, and every British monarch since has been a Protestant. Furthermore, as a result of Henry VIII's creation of the Church of England, every British monarch to this day has been head of the Church of England. Now, can you imagine that? A church born out of that? <laughs> and it, it resembles Catholicism. It really, really does. Well, they say it was a Protestant Reformation. I don't really like that term, Protestant, because, of course, Luther was trying to reform the Catholic Church when he first started his reforming, and he couldn't do that. So then he broke away and started the Lutheran Church. But before that, there was always the church. There was always Christians. There was always real believers after Jesus left the earth. And so I don't really like the term they give to Christians because I'm a Christian. I don't consider myself a Protestant. That's the way they labeled the uh, Reformation, Luther's Reformation. They they try to act like, or the Catholics, the way they write history, they try to act like they were the one true church. They were the only ones. And then Luther broke away and he started this Protestant church and then later on, there was all these different Protestant churches. Like here you have the Anglican Church, which Henry, King Henry started. But who would want to belong to a church like that, that was started with someone basically that was a serial killer like Henry, that killed two of his wives and numerous other people that he had beheaded for uh, who knows what? Some of the people that were closest to him, if you didn't agree with him or you, you didn't do what he liked, he had you murdered. So this is quite a uh, horrible historical figure, and who would want to belong to the church he started? So that's some of the, the uh, history of the Anglican Church and where it came from, the Church of England, and yes, all the, the English monarchs. Uh, 
are then also the head of the Church of England. So imagine that, some of the flaky people that have been in the uh, in the monarchy since Henry, and they were all the head of this church. So it's kind of a, a crazy situation, really, when you look at it. I like the church that Jesus started. <laughs> That's the church that I like. I probably would get a big amen out there because the church that he started, yeah, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, and we are the church. And I, I like I like I like that founder a lot better than some of these other founders. And you look at some of these religious institutions, and you look at some of the people that have started some of these things, and then you look at well, what do they really believe? So maybe many people don't even know what. Anglicans really believe. And then why would someone like Beth Moore want to join the Anglican Church? But here's a, here's how the Anglicans view the Eucharist. So in our first aspect then, the Eucharist relationship to our salvation. Anglicans believe that the Eucharist is generally necessary for salvation. That's what our 1662 Catechism tells us. So generally speaking, in most circumstances, if you want to be resurrected into eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, you need to be regularly taking the Eucharist. Of course, there are some exceptions to that. If you're in prison or something, you can't take the Eucharist. Or if you've died before you're able to take it for the first time, but you've been baptized and you wanted to take it, that's okay, we can still assume that you'll be saved, but generally speaking, it's something that Christians need to be regularly doing. That's what we see in John 6, when our Lord Jesus Christ says, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will have eternal life, and whoever does not eat his flesh and drink his blood has no life in them. The second aspect of the Eucharist relationship to our salvation is that we say the Eucharist is the means by which The passion or the crucifixion of Jesus is applied to us. We see that language in the liturgy and the prayer after the communion. It says that's how we receive the benefits of his passion. We also see that in the 1662 Catechism. That is, of course, in accordance with Scripture, where in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, St. Paul says that by drinking of the blood of Christ, we participate in the blood of Christ. And in short, Anglicans do believe in the real presence of Christ and the Eucharist. The 1662 Catechism says that the body and blood of the Lord is verily and indeed taken and received in the Lord's Supper. Verily and indeed. In other words, it really is present. And we see that so obviously in the liturgy. In the prayer of humble access, we pray that the blood of Christ will wash our souls clean and that our body will be made clean by his body. If we didn't believe in the real presence, that wouldn't make any sense. So we do believe in it. And we see that in scripture, in John 6, for instance, Jesus says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. That doesn't seem to make any sense unless he's talking, of course, about the Eucharist and his real presence. So what that means for us then is that when we're holding the chalice in our hands, what we're looking at inside that chalice is the blood of Christ. And it needs to be treated with that level of respect. 
And so for Anglicans, we have to utterly consume everything. Whatever is consecrated by the priest, the whole congregation has to eat that, or it's reserved for later. You can't just throw out the leftovers because we say that's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. However, where it gets complicated is that Anglicans don't believe in transubstantiation. That's the Roman Catholic doctrine about the real presence. Transubstantiation is explicitly rejected in our 39 articles. So essentially what that means is, although we believe that the body and blood of Christ is really present in the Eucharist, we don't believe it's present in a physical or bodily sense. This is where it gets really, really complicated. So we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking this. So first of all, the 39 articles. In article 28, it says this, the body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after an heavenly and spiritual manner. So it's not in a bodily or physical manner. It's in a heavenly and spiritual manner. What does that mean? Well, this is where Anglicans have actually some internal debate over it all. But basically, think about it like this. When you eat the bread in the Eucharist, the crumbs of the bread, the bread itself, is the mode by which the spiritual body of Christ is transmitted to you. So the body of Christ isn't this thing that you eat and just nourishes your body in this physical sense. It's something that is transported to you, assumed to you, spiritually and heavenly, through the mode of that bread. It's actually very similar to the idea of baptism. We believe that baptism has to occur in water. And the water is the mode by which the Holy Spirit then enters you and you receive him. A good way to understand the Anglican view is that in the Eucharist, we don't believe that Christ, who is up in heaven, comes down into the bread. Rather, when you eat the bread, you are being transported up into heaven where Christ's body is, and you receive him up there. I don't think so. I don't think so. It's very, very strange. Obviously, I don't know exactly what they believe about being born again, but I don't have to keep receiving Jesus all the time, like they're saying they have to go and they have to keep getting communion and they have to keep receiving Jesus. And, uh, no, I received Jesus once when I was born again. I don't have to keep receiving him. And when we take communion, we do it and we remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. But we don't believe that we're actually eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. I don't know where they get this stuff from. And I don't know what it, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Where he was saying that they believe that they have to take the Eucharist, otherwise they can't be saved. Well, there's no no scripture for that. There's no scripture for that at all. But I'm going to play. There's a couple of clips here that I have from Beth Moore, and you could see that through the years she started to. Uh, talk a little bit about becoming ecumenical, which I think that's probably where she's headed, is toward a one-world church. 
And I think some of the things that she said in the past kind of bear that out. Anyway, here's here she is. It's bad to differ with people that are ten times smarter than I am. But I want to say to you, I see something different than that. I see God doing something huge in the body of Christ. I do not know why I have had the privilege to get to travel around, see one church after another, one group of believers after another, interdenominationally all over this country, but I have gotten to see something that I think is huge. And I'll also suggest to you, I am not the only one. And tonight I'm going to do my absolute best to illustrate to you something that God showed me sitting out on that back porch. He put a picture, I've explained to you before, I'm a very visual person. So he speaks to me very often and putting a picture in my head. And it was as if I was raised up looking down on a community as I saw the church in that particular dimension, certainly not all dimensions, not even many, but in what we will discuss tonight, the church as Jesus sees it in a particular dimension. What I've done in this particular class that makes this group so special, and I'm loving this about you who are online, we are a very interdenominational group. And so I've literally gotten to position people from these denominations and from these backgrounds into these groups. So that just thrills me. So this part, we're not playing. However, I have just made up the name from familiar names of churches that I've seen through the years. Right over here to my right, you see First United Methodist Church of Lestonland. Right behind them, you would find, just down the street, just across the street, really, you've got Christ the Redeemer Lutheran Church. Every single one of my sisters in this area attends a Lutheran church, which thrills me. These all attend a Methodist church. I can't tell you how I love that kind of diversity. What I've asked these ladies to do right here, now this makes it a little bit different, because they do go to different churches. But what I've asked them to represent tonight to us is an African-American church that we're going to call Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. Is that good? Should I do good? Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right back here, I want you to meet St. Anne's Catholic Church of Lessonland. These ladies come, every single one of them, although they don't go to one Catholic church, every single one of them, attend a Catholic church probably right here in Houston. And I am so thrilled that they are here. What I've asked my sisters to do here, actually, they represent many different churches, but they represent one church in our midst tonight. These are our sisters that attend different charismatic churches in the city. But tonight, they attend Abundant Life Church. Is that So you see, she's saying that she's welcoming all these, these ladies. But of course, she's not going to rock the boat by bringing out the the false teachings and the uh, false doctrines that these churches. Well, how can you teach somebody the Bible if you're if you're trying to be ecumenical? You can't. You have to tell people the truth. You can't. Uh, yeah, I would be. I'm, I'm happy if other people that belong to different churches listen to my broadcast, but I'm not going to water it down just because I want people to to listen to my broadcast. I have to tell them the truth. 
about the denomination that they belong to or the even the charismatic church that they belong to if they're teaching heresy and they're teaching false doctrine. I have to point it out whether they they uh, come back or not. Maybe they don't like what I'm saying, but I'm going to try to tell people the truth because I'm not trying to gather disciples around Susan. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to gather disciples around Jesus Christ. That's who we're supposed to be serving and that and that we're supposed to adhere to his teachings and not belong to organizations that aren't teaching the gospel. It's a waste of time. Why why would you even waste your time? It's more of a social club than it is really a place where you're going to learn about the Bible because most of these these uh, institutional churches anyway, they're not teaching the Bible. They're teaching their catechism and the Anglican church has their own catechism just like the Catholic church does. And here's another clip from Beth Moore about scoffers. Prepared in advance for scoffers. We, I will say that again. We must be prepared in advance for scoffers. I want you to look at one another and say, be prepared for scoffers. And, and here's the thing. The, the unbelieving world scoffing is not going to bother us that much. We are used to them thinking that we are idiots. Can we just own that one? I mean, we're used to, of course they think that. We've got that one down. That's not what's going to bother us so much. What's going to bother us, and I believe that God is saying, get prepared for it so you know what advance is coming, so when it does happen, you are not all disturbed and all rocked by it, but it's going to come from some in our own Christian realm, our own brothers and sisters. We're going to have people that are honestly going to want to debate and argue with us about awakening and downpours. He's like, well, what do you want here? You're going to say, that's not the way it should look. You know what, dude? I'm just asking you, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? I can't think of the way to, to the semantics to get it like you want it. But I will say to you, I'm just thirsty and I'm hungry. But there will be scoffers, and they will be the far bigger threat, the one within our own brothers and sisters, our own family of God, far, far more demoralizing. And yes, it will come from bullies, and yes, it will be called instability. Grace will be called compromise. And the genuinely prophetic will be called false teaching. You see, say to the mountain, for some reason, ordained by God alone, he tells us that when we want something to move, we are to tell it to. That we are to open our mouths and say to the mountain, move it. You are in my way. Now, I can tell you what's going on right now. Some people are thinking, they're already shutting off right here. Because they're thinking, yeah, well, that is not for today. Then why in the world did he leave us this word? Why in the world did he leave us this word? We are to confess with our mouth. He said, open your mouth and say. When he spoke the world into existence, he didn't just think them, he spoke them. And he set a precedent. And he's saying to us, my words are omnipotent, but your words are potent. You stir up the faith within you. You look at that mountain and you say, move. Yeah, well, 
I'd rather have somebody scoff at me and tell me the truth than to let me stay in a lie. And see, she's insinuating that anybody that wants to point out anything about false doctrine or false teacher is a scoffer and a hater, but we don't hate people. We hate the devil and we hate false teaching. We hate people leading people astray. Yeah, well, God hates too. There's things that God hates. And he hates liars. And he doesn't like, especially people lying about his son and lying about his church. So it's not scoffing and hating when you uh, quote scripture to somebody and try to lead them from going astray. Because obviously you could see the best more she leaves the Southern Baptist Convention and she goes to the Anglican Church, which is a form of, of Catholicism. And here's a little piece about the Anglican Church and Mary. They even worship Mary. I'm at uh, the Shrine of Our Lady at Walsingham. We had a beautiful open-air mass uh, in these incredible parklands and surroundings, just glorious. We're having today our annual national pilgrimage, uh, at which we have welcomed and are welcoming 3,000 pilgrims from around the country. A pilgrimage is a joyful thing, where the journey itself is as important as the destination. Pilgrims have been coming here for nearly a thousand years. Uh, in 1061, the uh, Lady Richeldis, who was the local Lady of the Manor, received a vision of Our Lady of Walsingham, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, uh, and, the, and the Virgin said to her, build here a copy of my house in Nazareth. And so uh, she followed that instruction and a house was built, a replica of the Holy House in Nazareth. And that has been the, the focus of pilgrimage for nearly 1,000 years. The sermon this afternoon was uh, centered around the words of Mary at the wedding in Cana, do whatever he tells you, which has been the theme of the day. It's about allowing Mary to point us to Jesus. And that is, for me, the center of this pilgrimage. I don't need Mary to point me to Jesus. I have Jesus pointing me to Jesus. Why do I need Mary to point me to Jesus? And this was a an Anglican gathering that they had in, there in England where at this manor house where supposedly the lady saw Mary. And so then she kind of built this shrine to her. But there's the Anglican bishops there and they're dressed in their Catholic costumes and they're actually carrying a statue of Mary around up on a platform. Yeah. They're carrying the statue around. So that's the Anglican. That's part of the Anglican church. But here's one more clip here about what Anglicans really believe. Maybe you've recently started attending an Anglican church. Maybe you know someone who's attending an Anglican church. What is an Anglican? Well, you can answer that question in a number of different ways, and we will. In some other videos, we'll look at Anglican church history. In another video, we'll look at 
the Worldwide Anglican Communion or the Anglican Family of Churches. But today I want to just talk about what is an Anglican church and what is an Anglican Christian. So as Anglicans, first of all, we are Christians. We are Christians from the Reformed tradition and as well as from the Catholic tradition. I was in the grocery store recently and someone uh, asked me what kind of church an Anglican church was. They knew I was an Anglican priest. They saw me wearing this collar. I said, what is an Anglican? And I said, well, basically, if you take a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Roman Catholic, and you stick them into a blender and turn it on and mix it all up, that's kind of what we are as Anglicans. What does that mean? In the theological statement of the Anglican Church in North America, which is the parent denomination for Good Samaritan, our church, it says this, to be an Anglican, then, is not to embrace a distinct version of Christianity, but a distinct way of being a mere Christian. At the same time, evangelical, apostolic, Catholic, Reformed, and Spirit-filled. When you boil those down, what you get are what we call the, the three streams of Anglicanism, or evangelical, Catholic, and charismatic. These are all parts that we identify often with other traditions. When you think of Catholic, you might think of Orthodox churches or Roman Catholic churches. When you think of evangelical, you might think of some of those big Baptist churches. And when you think of charismatic or Pentecostal, you get a, a whole other picture in your head. Anglicanism has all of those elements all together. Sometimes they're stronger in one congregation or in one individual. Sometimes they're weaker. But Anglicanism at its best is a blend of all of these things. Because of this unique blend of these different elements, you may already know some wonderful Anglican theologians, people like C.S. Lewis and John Stott and J.I. Packer and N.T. Wright. All of these are Anglicans. All of these have a breadth of, of readership across the whole of the Christian tradition. Now, you might think that's, you know, wishy-washy or indistinct, Anglicanism does have a distinct theological heritage that comes down to us and that's active and vibrant today, but it does encompass all of those things. One of my favorite Anglican theologians, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, or sort of the, the head Anglican um, many years ago, his name was Michael Ramsey, and he wrote in a book called The Gospel and the Catholic Church and said, for while the Anglican Church is vindicated by its place in history with a strikingly balanced witness to the gospel and church and sound learning, its greater vindication lies in its pointing through its own history to something of which it is a fragment. Yeah, it's a fragment, all right. It was a fragment of Henry VIII's imagination and his rebellion. Anyway, uh, hopefully this woman will come out of this fog she's in and get her life straightened out because it's it's a tragedy really when you see somebody go this far astray from the true faith and then to wind up in this what I, I would consider it's almost like a cult this Anglican church and I don't know what she's looking for but you can only find peace and joy and happiness in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it by going to a building ultimately. Of course, yeah, you go to the building for fellowship and for Bible teaching and that kind of thing, but that can't be your source of comfort and strength. 
it's the Lord Jesus Christ who who is our comfort and who can we can receive compassion. So I hope that I I hope that she gets her life in order. I really do because it's it's a very sad state of affairs for her to be this messed up and to be going to this religious institution where it's really it's bondage. It's not freedom. It's not freedom. So whoever hurt her or whoever did what to her or whatever, it's like, okay, get over it. We're going to be hurt in life. And you just have to pick up the pieces and carry on. And maybe spend some, don't do any Bible teaching for a while. Get your head screwed on straight before you go out there and you start doing uh, Bible studies or whatever, when you don't even know yourself where you're at that you're so messed up that you're going over and, and to a place where they're bowing down to a chalice on an altar. That's pretty messed up. So sometimes you just have to take time off and get your priorities in order and look at, well, what do I believe? And do some repenting on your own, but don't just stay away from the limelight for a while. Stay away from any kind of public ministry and uh, until you get your life in order and, you, and what you believe. Because you're only going to hurt more people. You're going to hurt more people if you start going off into some religious institution and you could draw disciples away, other people, to go and join the same kind of, a, of an institution that isn't biblical. There's nothing that's there's nothing that's really biblical about this Anglican Church that I can see. It's a religious institution. It's an outgrowth of the Catholic Church. It's it was started by a rebellious king who wanted to commit adultery and did. So anyway. That's our show for today. I want to thank everybody that came into the chat room, Rick and Jeff and Shannon. Hi, Shannon. We haven't seen you for, oh, oh dear. Sorry to hear that, Shannon. Her husband passed away. Oh, dear. Yeah, we've been missing you over here, but we're glad to have you back. Yeah. Thanks for coming by. I've been wondering what happened. I thought something happened because I didn't see you for a long time here. I'm sorry to hear that. But let's pray for our sister Shannon because she just lost her husband, 46 years old. That's pretty young to uh, pass away. So don't forget to list her up and... um, Pray for her and just pray. There's so many people that are sick now with the virus that when you think about it, and, and especially when you go on social media, and they, there's so many people posting, my son has this, my mother has it, my cousin has it. There's so many people that I see every day that are that are getting sick, especially with the virus, and we just have to keep them in our prayers and lift them up. But I want to thank everybody that stopped by or all our listeners around the world for coming by and being a part of our broadcast, our brothers and sisters in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, United Kingdom, uh, Nigeria, and uh, 
those are most of our listeners. Well, of course, we have listeners from all over the world. But if you need to email me, you can. Susan at propheticnews.com is my email address. That's Susan at propheticnews.com, and I will answer you. And uh, so I hope to hear from you. But Jesus is Lord, and saints, we're going to get through. We're going to get through no matter what. Life can be really tough sometimes, and we don't understand the things that we have to go through. We really don't. But the most important thing is today, do you know the the Lord Jesus Christ? The book of Romans says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that died for us. Jesus Christ, amen, died for our sins so we wouldn't have to die in them. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is your Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a promise. Jesus said in the third chapter of John that you must be born again. First, you're born of your mother. And then you must be born again of the Spirit of God. And you might say, well, I've done so many horrible things in my life. Could God forgive me? Yes. Yes, he does forgive you, no matter what you've done. He forgives you and he will give you a bread of life, he promises. And I can I can attest to that. I can to that, that God gave a new life. Nobody could change my life. Nobody, only Jesus. And when I asked him to forgive me of my sins and asked him to be my Lord, he came into my life and changed my life forever and gave me a brand new life full of peace and joy, unspeakable. You can't buy peace and you can't buy joy, but it's a free gift from Jesus Christ. So thank you all for stopping by, Shannon. Great to see you again. And we'll be praying for you and lifting you up. So God bless you all. And enjoy the football games. Amen. Yeah.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.